And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this is another Americans Abroad Weekend Review Recap episode. And to help me do those things is a man who abandoned his uh, next Paul Hollywood aspirations, <laughs> all because it got a little bit, bit chilly outside. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. That's harsh, but extremely fair. I appreciate that you did not go further with this one, given my my rule on Twitter about not discussing the weather. But since we have made it a tradition to discuss your baking habits, they were suspended this week. Is that correct? They were suspended. And first of all, I <laughs> want to just say how much I respect that no weather rule. We've talked about that yeah. before, and I think it is an extremely important one for TSS to continue to abide by. And so as much as I want to talk about how just downright <laughs> incredible it was that it snowed in Phoenix, Arizona yesterday, I won't. I won't talk about uh, the snowman that I made. I won't say his name was Gary. I won't say any of those things. And instead, I will talk about how I failed you and I failed the listeners by not by not whipping up another loaf this week. And I, I will do my absolute best to amend that and come back stronger next week. So here is my question. It's non-bread related. It is weather related, sort of. But I've been to Arizona once. Uh, it was to go to the Grand Canyon and it snowed at the Grand Canyon. So I think in my mind, I'm like one for one on it snowing. <laughs> is it that rare? Is it that strange of an occurrence? So it's not strange in northern Arizona as you go ah, higher up in the state, both in elevation and like northness. It gets colder and, and in Flagstaff uh-huh. and in, in around the Grand Canyon by the rim. It gets very cold in the winter, especially. But down in the valley in Phoenix where the elevation is lower, it's I much see. more it's much more uncommon. And so yeah, it was was pretty big news for us here in Phoenix. So Joe made himself a snowman, did not make himself some bread, but did also uh, review some footage for a bunch of different Americans. We've got many different upsa- updates, many different uh, things to discuss. But first, let's talk U.S. men's national team for a moment, Joe. Uh, we have the, I think, confirmed roster for the friendly against Trinidad and Tobago on January 31st. We were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, and it seems like our plan is to review this game to talk some domestic USMNT. Does that work for you? Oh, that more than works for me. I am very excited, Taylor. All right. So I think Sunday night we will be back with a probably late Sunday, maybe early Monday, depending on how motivated <laughs> we are. Uh, we will be back with a review of that game. But we do have the roster. You can check that out. I'm debating whether or not I want to run through it. I'm not sure that I do uh, because it's it's a lot of names. And I feel like that would be a lot of listing. But I just wanted to mention that roster was in place. And we can also talk some other uh, quick updates from some Americans who we're not going to talk about their performances, but we'll talk about some moves such as Sebastian Soto moving back to Norwich uh, from Telstar. Joe, have you uh, have you been following this one with great abandon? Not necessarily with great abandon, <laughs> but I'm in the yeah. loop. I'm in the know, not because I know anything, but because I know how to read on Twitter and on, on different <laughs> websites out there. But late last week, Norwich City recalled Sebastian Soto from his loan with Telstar in the Dutch second division 
Soto scored seven goals in 12 games for Telstar. So not, not bad, but the level wasn't particularly high. And so he's moving back to Norwich, it seems. The move is dependent from what I've read on him getting a UK work permit. But because he's appeared for the US men's national team, and he did that, I think not once, but twice at the end of 2020, he should be able to qualify for that permit and start to get looks in training with the reserve teams. And then maybe at some point, if he shows well with the first team in the championship. And uh, Jeff Carlyle wrote a good piece about this, uh, pointing out that it was basically because the UK withdrew from the European Union, uh, Brexit happened. It means that regulations for work permits have been changed. So maybe he wouldn't have been able, he would not have been able to get one previously, or there would have been larger concerns. Does seem uh, like it will work. Uh, the last line that I read from Carlyle was a source with knowledge of the situation told ESPN that approval of Soto's application is trending in a positive direction. That's okay. a nice way to put that. Oh yeah. So that's. That's trending in a positive direction, I would say. So, too, is the career of Caden Clark. Let's let's move to him. Let's do it. Yeah, Caden Clark, from what I've read and, and heard reported from The Athletic, and weirdly, months ago, and not the, the report isn't weird, but months ago, I read a very similar report from Matt Doyle at MLSsoccer.com. My confusion lies in, in not understanding what the difference is between these two reports, but if we stop worrying about that so much, if I stop <laughs> worrying about that so much, it seems like Caden Clark, uh, New York Red Bulls youngster, he's 17 years old, signed for them late last season, reportedly is headed to RB Leipzig at the end of the 2021 MLS season and at the very start of the 2022 calendar year. And so he seems like he's going to be following in Tyler Adams' footsteps a little bit and moving over across the pond into the Bundesliga. Do you feel like we are like reaching the level of we're just going to have, like I think I saw Bayern Munich posting a photo of all of the FC Dallas players that have the connection to Bayern Munich now. And I'm wondering, like, do you think we're just going to have that at, at a certain point? Will there be that pipeline of Red Bulls to Salzburg to Leipzig and then we'll have the Dallas to Bayern connection? I don't know what will happen next, but it does seem like those pipelines are strengthening and we're getting more and more youngsters moving abroad. It does, right? And this Clark situation is such an interesting one because he's not a Red Bulls homegrown. He's not a Red Bull well, he might technically be roster rules-wise, but he did not come up through the New York Red Bulls Academy. He came from Minnesota, and then he moved to the Barca Residency Academy in Casa Grande, Arizona. And now he was signed by the Red Bulls, and they had to do some MLS voodoo magic to get his rights from Minnesota United. It's a whole thing, right? And Paul and Sam have covered that really well in Allocation Disorder. It's a whole thing, but at the end of the day, the Red Bulls got a talented young player. They have some more in their academy and it looks like the Red Bull family and their older brothers in Europe and Austria and in Germany are are starting to appreciate that pipeline a little bit more. I remember a quote from some higher up in the Red Bull group talking about how the, the New York Red Bulls didn't have any young players they were interested in. And that was before Caden Clark signed for them and before maybe their USL team was really in full swing last season. And so there are opportunities for that pipeline to be strengthened in the future for sure. I think their official spokesperson is that little cartoon character they use in their ads. So I'm going to assume that was who uh, who gave that <laughs> that uh, introductory remark no, about right. Americans moving abroad. Okay, cool. I, I appreciate that cartoon for doing that. I appreciate that move. I also am happy that Jordan Morris's move is now official. Uh, the loan to Swansea that will will be made permanent if things go well. Fingers crossed for him. Uh, maybe not for Seattle fans, although I think they... I did enjoy when he moved and it seemed like it was the appropriate amount of we're really sad he's leaving but Swansea fans should be excited I think Swansea fans have to kind of be heartened by that they didn't get a bunch of tweets saying like huh he's yours now good riddance uh, I think you're you have always got to be happy when a player coming in is sort of beloved and the fans are saying like treat him well he's gonna do great uh, so I'm I am excited for Jordan Morris in the championship I think we will get him sooner rather than later I don't know the same can be said for Dwayne Holmes which is where I want to take us next Dwayne Holmes 26 year old American Central 
midfielder who has now officially moved back to Huddersfield from Derby County. When last we discussed him, Joe, uh, Wayne Rooney had made some, some comments about his training habits. Things were not working out as well. Uh, and, or, and it seemed like maybe he could turn it around, but maybe more likely a move to Huddersfield was going to happen. And that has indeed been the case. I did a little bit more like research, which is to say I texted Brian Charetta and asked, <laughs> any idea what's going on here? Uh, and he basically, gave me the distillation, which is that Holmes sort of uh, tailed off once Frank Lampard left. And I think and then Rooney was a little bit frustrated that he wasn't able to kind of find that form as quickly as he would have liked. That's the the general version. A few more bullet points in there would be that I think when Lampard left, he sort of understood exactly what his role was. Lampard had utilized him in a consistent way. So he knew from game to game what he needed to do. I think when Koku comes in, that changes. He's being asked to do a couple different things. And obviously the formation and approach changes as well. And then there's injuries and then there's COVID. And I think Dwayne Holmes seems to be a player who thrives on consistency and getting those minutes to get those reps to stay consistent. And once he doesn't have that I think some of that confidence goes and I think he starts to struggle and then it does sort of become that cycle of if he doesn't have the confidence but Wayne Rooney is frustrated by him not having confidence then that's going to make him have even less confidence and it kind of goes that way until a move is required so this is one of those moments when similar to Jordan Morris it being like yeah it seems like it's the right time for that move to occur this also very much feels like the right time to occur though for very different reasons. And I was just going to say the move is a good one for Dwayne Holmes, I think. Moving yeah. from Darby County, who are are lower down in the championship table than Huddersfield. Hudders, Huddersfield is seven spots above, I believe, as we're recording right? right now. Yeah, They're not a great championship team, and they're not in great form right now. But in terms of points and in terms of their spots in the table, respectively, it's not a bad place to be. It seems like Huddersfield manager Carlos Corberan has faith in Holmes. It seems like he... He's willing to use him as a central midfielder, as an attacking midfielder, or out on the wing. And so because he's going back to the, uh, Dwayne Holmes is going back to the team that he grew up in, growing growing up and, and moving through their academy as a youngster and getting some minutes for them at the beginning of his pro career. Now he's coming back to Huddersfield. It looks like, as I said, the manager is willing to use him and knows how to use him. It seems like this could end up being a really good time to move and a really good place for Dwayne Holmes to be moving. Yeah, I I, I echo all of those things because I too like scrolled the, the table thinking like oh that's a shame he's moving from like mid top top of the table to I'm assuming bottom of the table when it was reversed I was a little bit a little bit heartened by that yeah. one for Dwayne Holmes um, and and like and I think we would obviously prefer like Jordan Morris movie to Swansea they're second right now they're going to be challenging for promotion automatic promotion maybe the playoffs but either way you would expect them to be in that conversation I don't think you would say the same of Huddersfield or Derby County at least at this point and so I think with that in mind, it's not as though he was moving to a club who are going to move up to the Premier League. It wasn't like he moved straight to the Premier League. So if we're looking at championship teams, if it means he's getting minutes and getting that kind of consistency he needs to find that form and stay in the rhythm that allows him to be a competent and confident midfielder, then then I am all for it. So I am excited to watch Huddersfield. I don't know if I will ever actually end up doing that, aside from the Dwayne Holmes specific moments. Uh, Joe, I'm just going to go ahead and sign you up for Huddersfield duty. Yeah, I, that's that's fine. Yeah, we can do that. It's also kind of exciting. Like, I, I don't know where we're going to go next, which player, but it is also exciting to... There was a time not long ago when it was like, oh, we've got another guy in the championship. Like, it feels like we're making moves. And it's a very strange time to go from that to like, oh, he made his debut for this team and he made his debut for that team. I oh, know this person is winning silver in, silver in Italy. And it's just... It suddenly feels like there are a lot of Americans doing a lot of big, big things. And I hope that Dwayne Holmes becomes one of those. But Joe, let's talk about another American who has made a move or is doing something big. Who would you like to discuss next? 
Well, it's almost like you read my mind because the one player I want to start with is someone who has recently made a move from the Philadelphia okay. Union to Genk in Belgium. It's Mark McKenzie. He made his Genk yeah, yeah. debut in the league against Club Bruges on Sunday. He started and played all 90 minutes in a 3-2 loss. We'll skip over the losing part. But <laughs> the fact that Mark McKenzie moves and, and makes this debut against a, a very good team, Bruges' top of the table in Belgium... That's a good, that's good news. That's a good sign. Mark McKenzie played as a left-sided center back in a back three. And the Genk back line wasn't great in this game. They had a couple of miscommunications with trying to set their offside trap. It was hard for me to tell if any of those were expressly McKenzie's fault. I don't think they were, but they, they were playing in sort of a back five when they're back defending and their offside trap was a little wonky uh, at times in this game. One of their, their defensive line miscommunications led to Bruges' first goal down McKenzie's side, but again, I don't think it was his fault. Where I was more focused on in this game was with Mark McKenzie's ability defensively. Okay, this sounds extremely general, but I was I was focused on his ability defensively and offensively. Uh, defensively, mm-hmm. he looked so incredibly solid. He was physically able to keep up with everything that Club Rouge threw his way. He muscled Bruges attackers off the ball. He won the ball in the air. He covered ground. He blocked shots in the box. He was everywhere in the box. And offensively, he looks totally comfortable on the ball, which doesn't surprise me because we've seen that with the U.S. national team. We've seen it with the Philadelphia Union, and now we are seeing it in Belgium as well. Mark McKenzie put in a really, really solid performance in his Genk debut. That makes me very, very happy, not just because I like Americans doing exciting things, but I think because some of the issues or potential issues you've mentioned, like that offside line, I think maybe you can explain that away a little bit by it being a January transfer. We know it's always difficult to get a player in to sort of like in that moment to figure it out, to kind of like hit the ground running and that they're already giving him that opportunity, I think speaks volumes. And I, I would assume the familiarity or increased familiarity as he gets more games and gets more minutes will allow some of those uh, issues to be be just ironed out. Maybe everybody gets on the same page a bit more, but I'm with you from what I saw that his defensive approach, his positioning, and then the like usage of physicality when it was necessary. It was a great little like one-two punch because it would be like, okay, yeah, he tracked that run. Oh, he won the ball away. Like it was, it was a nice, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, he's doing a good job of showing a player one way, showing a player the other. He sort of did on a couple different occasions, the full package of tracking, winning the ball, and even making a smart pass thereafter. Yeah, he had so many strong and smart defensive moments in this game. And there's one specifically that I want to zero in on. It's from the 57th minute and Genk are back defending in their half. It looks like they've just lost the ball. And so they're, they're in transition defense mode a little bit at this time. And Mark McKenzie is in his left center back spot and Bruges are attacking down his side. So Bruges play the ball into Theo Bongonda. We're going to see if I said that right, but I'm going with it. Bongonda, who was one of their their more attacking players in this game, a member of their front three at times and attacking midfielder at other times. And so Bruges play the ball into Bongonda, and he's right in McKenzie's defensive area. And that, that pass comes into the Bruges player at his feet. And right as the ball comes into Bongonda, McKenzie is right on his back. He's tight to him, which is good. That's what you want. You want to eliminate that space. And Bongonda tries to get away, right? He does a smart thing. He tries to turn away from McKenzie's pressure which is really what you should do in that situation. You can't just stay there. You're going to lose that physical battle to Mark McKenzie 11 times out of 10. And Mark McKenzie doesn't let Bongonda turn away from pressure. He stays in contact with him. He doesn't let him turn and spin around to his left. He stays tight and pokes the ball away and looks completely unfazed while all of this is happening. He's got a smaller guy on him. He's trying to stay light on his feet. He's trying to stay quick and strong at the same time. And he does all of those things. And he did all of those things throughout this game. 
Mark McKenzie looked like a, a pretty dominant defensive force out there, not just in the 57th minute, but throughout his gank debut. And there's definitely a, th- like, I will say grain of salt here that when you watch a clip over and over and over again, you start to like see intentionality where there, it may not be. But I will say in watching this defensive play, he, he sort of does a, a, a very slight weave as he's closing down that space. And I really do, do think it throws off the defender a bit of, he's not sure if he should go towards the touchline or if he needs to cut back. And there's, there's just a, as a result, a moment of, in, of indecision. I do think the ball is played a little bit behind him and maybe if it's a little bit sharper McKenzie isn't able to make this play but because it's a little bit uh, too soft of a pass the attacker hesitates and McKenzie does not and I do think that him just sort of like going to the right going to the left it it makes it really hard for the attacker to know with confidence what's going to happen and fundamentally that's what you want to do as a defender is just disrupt the rhythm not let them do what they want and make them have to start thinking because as soon as they start thinking they're slowing down they're not playing as much by impulse or instinct and I think you can make a play and that's what I saw from Mark McKenzie so I was excited about this debut as well yeah and I don't really have a ton else to add he just to reiterate he looked comfortable on both sides of the ball he looked comfortable in transition he got forward on set pieces and tried to to clatter around in the box a little bit I think it was a a solid debut for Mark McKenzie, and if Genk had won this game, it would be a really, really good debut for Mark McKenzie. Yeah, yeah, not too bad at all. Uh, anything you want to keep an eye on from him or anything you'll be paying attention to aside from maybe the back line? Yeah, so I want to see how his left-footed passing continues to develop. Because he it, he played as a left-sided center back for Philadelphia, he got a chance to to really show off his two-footedness, and he did it very well for the Union, and then he did it well for the U.S. Men's National Team back in December now with Genk, it seems like he's also going to be playing as a left-sided central defender, which is the opposite side of his right foot, his naturally dominant foot. Watching how he continues to grow and become more comfortable with his left foot and breaking lines with that non-dominant foot, I'm going to be keeping my eye on that for sure. All right. Well, I was keeping my eye, my eye on uh, Matthew Hoppy. I think I get to start with like Dwayne Holmes being a, a pretty negative update, although we'll see what happens with Huddersfield. And then I get to start like going more and more positive from here because Matthew Hoppy, I don't think had a bad game. And we talked about uh, Schalke's 4-0 loss to Bayern Munich on the weekend review. I think I was a bit more charitable to him. I think Ryan and Graham were both of the kind of perspective of, yeah, you lost 4-0. You didn't really get many opportunities. I think every single Bayern Munich player had a shot, uh, except for for Manuel Neuer, and even then, maybe Manuel Neuer, you never know for sure. <laughs> but I think in in watching this game like live, I, I wasn't really planning to watch it for Hoppy. I was expecting to watch the game, see what was happening, see what Shaka were trying to do. And then maybe I'll go back and, and, and watch his individual moments. And instead, a lot of my notes are like, we'll, like, we'll discuss with Joe on Tuesday three or four different times in my notes about this game. Cause I thought he was, one of, if not the brightest players for Schalke. There were still the moments that we've talked about in the past where I think he was a little bit inconsistent or maybe rushed some decisions. But I also think in terms of like trying something, trying to create, trying to cause Bayern problems, I think he was more willing to do that than a lot of other Schalke, play- Schalke players. Maybe because he was the only outlet and only option on a consistent basis. But it was it was a nice to see just a little bit of swagger from an American playing for a very poor Bundesliga team to sort of know the situation, know he's go- going against Bayern Munich and thinking like, we might not win this, but I'm going to let you all know I can do some things. And I think some things he did do. Uh, but Joe, I want to start with a negative for him. I, uh, last week, can you refresh us about what maybe one of your concerns was for Matthew Hoppe in the footage you watched? One of the things I've noticed from Hoppy when I've watched him for Schalke so far this season and his last few games for them is that he always prefers, or it seems like he always prefers to make his runs 
in behind the back line and not making his runs back into the midfield. And I think the reason for that, or at least my hypothesis right now, is that he's not super comfortable dropping in and playing with his back to goal. So I think I brought that up last week saying this is something that he should work on and growing more comfortable when he has his back to goal would allow him to elevate his game and become a more well-rounded number nine. All right. And I think that that connects to some of the stuff I saw in this game, because there is a moment, uh, I, I think you've seen this clip, Joe, of he he drops in, Byron, I think, have a set piece. Schalke are desperately trying to get the ball clear, and it sort of is up in the air. Uh, Hoppy is facing his own goal back to the Byron goal, and as the ball comes down, he tries to kind of one-time clear it away, and it makes sense, because it's Bayern Munich. They've got numbers committed forward. You don't want to get caught in possession. You don't want to make a mistake. They will punish you, so get rid but he sort of rushes it and doesn't whiff, but he does not make clean connection. And the ball sort of, uh it's a worm burner, I think is the golf term, but it goes about like 30 yards out, but it goes straight to a Bayern player. And you can sort of see his Schalke teammates, who did have time and space, being pretty frustrated by that. And that, to me, sort of stood out in the way that you've kind of spotlighted before. If some of that decision making, some of that maybe awkwardness when he's dropping in and not being quite sure how to link up, not being quite sure what his responsibility in that moment is. That did stand out to me in a negative way. But Joe, I know you've seen maybe like one of the other more positive clips. So I'm wondering how that one stood out to you. Yeah, that that first one, Taylor, are more clips from Hoppy in this game. The uh, I think I said Joe three uh, from what I saw. So the, I guess the second one where he gets into it with Leon Goretzka a little bit. Yeah. So after that initial clip you sent me where he he didn't really survey mm-hmm. his surroundings and he didn't make the right decision. It's easy for me to say that sitting, you know, on my couch, but you get the idea. This, this next clip that you sent me, Taylor, it's, it's later on in the game. It's the 61st minute and, and Matthew Hoppy is kind of on the side of the field or he's making a run towards that left side of the field to get on the end of an outlet pass. And he, he shows good speed. First of all, he looks faster than I kind of thought he was in this clip, but he shows yep. good speed and then muscles off a Bayern Munich player, Leon Goretzka. And controls the ball. He doesn't rush things. He doesn't move too quickly. And that for me is huge because that was my big criticism last week. He moved too quickly, didn't make the right pass. And I think if he'd waited a half second or even less than that, he would have seen the right pass and made the right call. In this clip, instead of rushing things, he moves wide. He gets on the end of the ball. He shows some strength and then passes it back and allows Schalke to recycle possession. That's huge, and that's progress, and that's the kind of growth that I think a young player like Matthew Hoppy can exhibit from week to week, and that's a good sign. It is, and it's a good sign that it's against Leon Goretzka, who, like, every time we see him, seems Jacks. to have just been working on his biceps a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, so to be able to kind of run at full speed, keep control of the ball, keep your wits about you as that contact first sort of is absorbed, but then still cut it back and keep the ball moving, uh, I thought that was that was a positive sign, the movement, and just being an outlet when you're sort of playing against a team that do have all the possession. We've seen that happen in the United States before when they, they sort of bunker in a little bit more against stronger uh, a stronger opponent, and having Hoppy be able to to kind of fight for everything, challenge for everything, I think will be very, very good. I think the other aspect of it that makes me happy is that he he's bringing some like skill to it. <laughs> like it's not just a sort of bringing the ball down. He's the big guy. He's going to battle for everything. But the other moment that I really enjoyed uh, was the 65th minute. It's another sort of Schalke trying to just make something happen. Bayern have committed their line very high up. I think they're all past like at midfield or past it. And it's the one, it's only the second time, I think, because the first clip that you just mentioned was the first time. I think it's only the second time that Shaka were able to sort of, from a goal kick, 
connect some passes to be able to launch a long ball from 30 yards further up the field, what routinely would happen is they'd take a, a goal kick short, they'd try to move it around, and inevitably the center back or the goalkeeper would just sweep it long as far as they could. And then you're you're just trying to create from a way further back position, a way deeper position, you're not going to be able to do as much. The two times that they're able to get a little bit of space, a little bit further forward, and then that ball happens, the first one is the one we just talked about, the second one is this one, Hobby kind of runs in, like makes a smart run, stays on side, and then it's him versus Jerome Boateng. And you would love to see him just kind of dust Jerome Boateng, get in and get a shot. That's not what happens because I think Boateng has a good pursuit angle. But Hobby doesn't really have much in the way of support. And so it's a it's a sort of acceleration, slow down, a couple of different qu- quick step overs, a faint one way. He cuts it back the other one. It doesn't end up coming to much because I think it's a bit of a heavy touch. Boateng sort of shepherds him and the ball out of bounds. It's a goal kick for Bayern. But just like it reminded me of like a like Tigger, I think is what I wrote down from Winnie the Pooh, just that he's like always bouncing and trying stuff and moving. And and even when you expect him to be tired and just like, OK, now he's going to slow it down and hold it up that he tries to go at a world class defender. It, it made me very excited just that he has that swagger. And it's exemplified by the end, I think, in frustration, like the ball goes out of bounds and he's able to kind of control it just too late. And he starts to juggle a couple times and Boateng comes over to get the ball with Bayern ahead. I'm not quite sure why he was so impatient, but he gives Hoppy a little bit of a shove as he turns to take the ball away. And, and Hoppy just like slaps his hand away. And again, it's like a, a teenager sort of being like, get away from me, man. Like, I just I like that vibe. I like that he's not overawed by the opponent, uh, individual or the team as a whole, and instead is just kind of backing himself to try stuff and see what happens. It's probably a freedom born of a team in last place, but it's still a freedom that he seems to have embraced. So I was very excited to see what Matthew Hoppy did this weekend. I like the swagger that he showed at the end mm-hmm. of that play. I think you sent it to me and, and you were pretty excited about it. And I watched <laughs> it and I was also excited about it. I texted you back. Matthew Hoppy is feeling himself a little bit. And he was, <laughs> yeah, he right? Is. I mean, yeah, Schalke were losing two to nothing at that point and they'd go on to lose by even more. But you take yeah, the small fine. victories, Taylor. You take the small victories. You do indeed, Joe. We will have uh, larger victories to be discussed. But first, let's take a moment to hear from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you very much to our sponsors. Joe, thank you very much to you for talking about our next player, whomever it will be. I leave it to you. Let's keep the Philadelphia Union theme going or the ex-Philadelphia Union theme going. And I'm going to talk about Brendan Aronson, who came off the bench in the 62nd minute to make his Austrian Bundesliga debut for RB Salzburg on Sunday. He was in a 2-0 win for RB Salzburg. They were already up by two goals by the time Aronson comes in. And so he's not coming on the field to do a ton or, or really you wouldn't think you would need to do a ton at this point. But Brendan Aronson binds away. Brendan Aronson found a way to get involved in this game <laughs> defensively, getting forward like in transition. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Brendan Aronson always finds a way. And he was impactful. At the beginning of his his time on the field and when he comes in midway through the second half, he looked a little bit, I wrote in my notes, he looked a little bit like a bull in a china shop. He was bu- bouncing around everywhere and he was moving so quickly. He looked out of control a little bit. But as his time on the field wore on and as he got more comfortable... I think that out of controlness, that lack of control faded. And I, I think he became more acclimated to the environment. And it's understandable, first of all, that he was a little bull in the china shopish because it's his league debut, right? He got a, a time in a friendly for Salzburg last week that we talked about on the show last Tuesday. But this is his first real chance to get minutes in the Austrian Bundesliga and to help RB Salzburg push for that title. And so it's understandable that he looked out of control. But again, as time wore on, he looked more and more in control and was able to turn his speed from maybe even a liability into an asset. And he started to buzz around and and break up plays and to get out in transition and to make things happen. And that's exactly the kind of play, exactly the kind of style of play that I think we should all be expecting to see from Brendan Aronson based off of his time with the Union and now funneling into that RB Salzburg system under Jesse Marsh. I don't know if I'm just in a good mood. Who knows? Uh, but like watching like the footage from this weekend, both of the players that uh, I'm talking about, the players you're talking about, I just I really was like more optimistic than I think I've ever been for the national team or been in a very long time. And it was just moments like uh, what Brendan Aronson was doing, that it's it's this player who. What, two years ago? We're like, ah, I think it's like an academy kid. Like, I'm sure you know him two years ago, Joe, but I, I wouldn't claim to have been uh, quite as familiar. Uh, and so for him to to be moving to Salzburg and then there's that like, all right, it's going to take him a little bit of time. Like, we got to ease him in. And it's just like he seems, if nothing else, like he's got that energy. He's got that work rate. And it just makes me think that this national team, it's just going to be an exciting team because there's just so many players who I think have the technical ability or are developing the technical ability, but have that work rate and that sort of dedication to doing as they're instructed and executing the game plan and this seemed like that where Hoppy just kind of comes in he seems to be fitting in maybe there's a few like mistakes here and there a few missteps but for the most part I just I was really excited to see this game from him there's so much speed with Aronson and with with Mm -hmm. all the players well maybe not all the players we're talking about today but if you think about the men's national team pool you've got Christian Pulisic who's incredibly fast you've got Jordan Morris who's really really fast Gio Reyna, not the fastest guy, but still able to cover ground with his long legs. In midfield, you've got a guy like Brendan Aronson. You've got Weston McKenney, who we'll talk about later on. You've got Eunice Musa. Again, we'll talk about him later. Tyler Adams, hmm. the same thing. You, the list yep. goes on and on with these extremely athletic guys who can make runs out of midfield, who can, who can excel in transition moments. And, and to bring it back to Aronson for a minute, 
That's what he does so well. His ability to flip the switch from defending to attacking. I talked about it last Tuesday. I'm talking about it again. It was the 76th minute, and I want to pinpoint this moment in the 76th minute. Aronson is back defending. He's playing as that left-sided attacking midfielder in the 4 triple 2 And he, he's back defending on the left wing. And he drops back to pressure the ball, and then he recovers the ball. He gets on the ball, turns out of pressure, plays a quick lateral pass to a teammate. And then after he plays the pass, Aronson doesn't stop. He doesn't relax. He doesn't sit back. He keeps moving. As soon as he plays the pass, Aronson peels off and makes kind of a run up the left side. And it's a little bit fortunate that the ball gets back to him, but it does. And at this point, he's in space. He sees a runner moving up the left side as well. And Aronson plays a well-weighted through ball into that front runner, into that attacking teammate to get his teammate in behind the back line and into the box. That play happens because Aronson is so quick to pressure, number one. But then after he gets on the ball, he's so quick to react and to make something happen. And it's a wise decision. That's a really important distinction to make. It's not a, a decision that is hasty or a decision that's unwise in terms of his passing options. He finds a simple pass. He finds the open man. And then he keeps moving and he makes something happen with that really nice through ball. Brendan Aronson's speed and his ability to transition mentally is what makes him such an effective player right now. And I think that's only going to develop further under Jesse Marsh. Yeah, and I think so much of the kind of, in my understanding at least, the Red Bull RB system is like we want to play a certain style a certain way and it's up to you to be able to kind of technically execute that but also not overcomplicate it. And I think there's something to be said for a person who has the fitness, has the speed, has the physicality and then makes those like simple but smart choices and they're not overcomplicating, they're not slowing it down, they're not taking 40 touches when two touches will do and I think we're going to get some of those moments from him where it's like, ooh, you didn't need to go on that dribble, ooh, you didn't need to try that but I think also we're going to see those kind of like quick moments of interplay, quick combinations that I think benefit Salzburg, certainly benefit probably Leipzig long-term, maybe some other teams as well. But I, I think those sort of moments show like, okay, so he's kind of finding his footing within the style of play, but is also like acclimating well to it. And I think that kind of double combination makes me pretty pleased. It does. He fits in that system so well. He fits as that left-sided attacking midfielder. I'm convinced he fits there really well. In the 4-2-2-2, I counted very carefully that time. In that formation, Aronson Aronson just works with this team. And it might take him a while to get consistent starts. And that's that's fine. He can finish out the rest of the season with getting those sporadic sub-appearances with an occasional start when RB Salzburg have double game weeks, which they're going to have a lot. And he can continue to make himself a bigger and bigger part of this team and really push to be a major impact player in in the rest of the the 2021-2022 season as we look forward to the season ending and next season starting. It's a good spot for Brendan Aronson to be in. All right. So I'm I'm excited about Brendan Aronson. I want to talk more about exciting spots for people. Uh, but Joe, anything else from Aronson before we move on? No, that's all I got, Taylor. Who's your next player? It's Josh Sargent. And I feel like it's been a while since I got to just talk in pretty positive terms about Josh Sargent. I, I don't know if I like if it was sort of once you start seeing the negative, you keep seeing the negative or if it really was just a a kind of consistent run of like, yeah, I mean, he was there, but it's Werder Bremen. They don't look very good. This weekend, Werder Bremen do look very, very good. And I think so, too, did Josh Sargent. And I do wonder if that's them being dominant. They blow out Hertha Berlin. And I, I have to believe that more chances, more people getting forward, 
everybody kind of enjoying themselves when you're blowing out a team, uh, it probably makes you feel more confident. There's a bit more swagger. And then you do things like try a shot from 35 yards out that bends in and confuses everybody. And that's exactly <laughs> what Josh Sargent did. But that's not the min- moment I want to, I want to talk about. I want to talk about another one where he kind of vacates space. But even before that, Joe, I want to ask you, like, do you think of Josh Sargent as being quick? Because I did not, and this game changed that a little bit for me. So I think I saw a tweet at some point that had him clocked as, this was from some random Bundesliga game from a while back, but it had him as the the player with the top speed from that match. And I know that in my head, but when I watch Josh Sargent, it's still hard for me to remember that. Maybe that just means I'm bad at evaluating players and looking I mean, at how I am fast too then, they buddy. run. I am too. <laughs> but I know it in <laughs> yeah. my head, Taylor, but to answer your question, I forget it so often. I forget that he's fast and that he's quick, but he kind of is, right? He, I think he really is because obviously he can get on the end of balls and, and kind of chase things down to keep plays alive. But he comes in as a substitute and I'm going to talk about a little more about that in a moment. But he comes in as a sub and is immediately chasing people down. And it's not just kind of like doing the forward running of trying to close down angles. It's spotting opportunities for opposition players and shutting them down as quickly as he can. It's closing 20 yards, 15 yards. It's good sprints to mark people to to make sure that they're occupied, to make sure that they're not, they're not an easy outlet. And that just those little moments of acceleration, the quickness, I think because he gets used so often as a, a battering ram or a physical presence in the middle, or that's what they seem to be trying to do with him, it's easy to forget that he has that other skill set. And so watching it this weekend, again, I think because maybe it was just a bit more positive, that stood out all the more. But then also the kind of things that we've come to expect from him, including the chest pass, which I'm now saying is like his the hallmark of Josh Sargent, <laughs> at least with Werder Bremen, the chest layoff. He has perfected that. He did it like six times uh, after coming on as a substitute. That's no that's no small feat. But you know what I'm talking about, Joe, oh, when, yeah. I, when I'm saying the chest pass? Yeah. Well, I mean, why don't you walk it through for everybody? But I think I know what you're talking about. It's it's just like basically it's him like checking away, checking to as a long ball. Usually a driven ball is played in. Oftentimes it's just a clearing ball. I'm not even sure it's meant for him, but he's able to get on the end of it. And he has these very powerful directional chest passes that he can kind of put to one side or the other. He can send backwards and then he always peels off and makes the run in behind. And that feels very much like a sequence they've practiced and he knows what's being asked of him. And I guess similar to Aronson, it's a strange comparison to make given the... The recency of Aronson's move, but it's that like, oh, I can see what he's trying to do. I can see the development. I can see how things are starting to click. And maybe this was just the first time that Werder Bremen scoring so many goals. It felt like it was clicking consistently. But I thought him coming in and having that impact made me very pleased. It's worth noting that they were already up uh, when Josh Sargent comes on, courtesy of a Davy uh, Selka goal. Davy Selka starts in place of Josh Sargent. So I then watched a lot of Davy Selka to see like, uh-oh, does he do what Sargent does better? Is, is it going to be a sort of battle? Is it going to be Josh Sargent coming on as a substitute? Number one, he leaves with a, a pretty bad hip injury, or excuse me, thigh injury, so we'll see how long that lasts. But it was also a strangely positive game from an American perspective in that I saw Selkie doing what Sargent does, bringing the ball down, stretching the line, causing problems for defenders. But I also saw him miscontrol some passes. He had one that was kind of driven into him that it ends up looking like it's a really skillful flick, but it actually, like, he misses it and it hits his trailing leg and redirects to one of his teammates who then gets a shot off. So I saw some of that, like, oh, he's good, but not this, oh, Josh Sargent has now got his work cut out for him. And then for Sargent to come in, and do some of the things we've already talked about, I'm already feeling better. But then there's the goal. And even before that, for the third goal for Werder Bremen, 
they win the ball back and it's the the gegen pressing idea of you are most vulnerable when you're caught trying to counterattack and that's exactly what happened and you have hearts of defenders kind of scrambling trying to make sure they know where they need to be and it's a veteran move from sergeant that he recognizes oh in this moment of uncertainty for herta i can try to find some space i can try to just pop up and create an overload and he drops in maybe five yards to be there as an as a sort of inlet pass he's wide open and the hurts of defense basically just collapses on him i think he there's a little bit of panic there they're not quite sure like who needs to step and when and it ends up being a omar alderete who tracks him at like goes maybe five ten yards out of the space to make sure he's with sergeant but it's that space where the ball goes in and it leads to the goal and so it's sergeant even if he's not scoring the goal himself it's creating that space that herta can then attack i've heard that movement that sergeant and his attacking teammate do i've heard that referred to as a counter movement right josh sergeant Hmm. drops deep and then someone immediately moves in to fill that spot that space as sergeant drops and drags a defender with him that idea of a counter movement and having kind of like counterweights, like one one moves, one player, you know, moves as a result of that initial move. It's like a, a teeter-totter, a seesaw, right? You've got <laughs> that that counter movement, and it's a smart move from Sargent. He just drops, and he probably doesn't know that his teammate is going to exploit that space so well. But by dropping, he at least provides the opportunity for his teammate to make that move. He provides the space all he can control, all Josh Sargent can control is what he does with his movement. And the rest of the counter movement is up to his teammate. And it, it comes off really well. And it shows that Josh Sargent can be a threat when he's dropping because I mean, a defender follows him immediately. And it also shows, I think, that he has the smarts to know, okay, this is how I can create space. Even if I'm not going to get on the ball, I can do something to help my team in this moment. And he, he does exactly that in this moment. But you know what else he does when he's on the ball, Jail? <laughs> he scores goals, Taylor. He scores goals. Uh, I had seen this goal before I started watching this game. And I was I was sort of ready for like, okay, we know he scores a good goal, but like, what else does he do? And then with everything else I've already talked about, when we get to the moment of the goal, it ends up just being like, oh, no, this this is the crowning achievement for him. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Because it's if, if people have not seen it, it is a very well-hit strike from 35 yards out. It completely wrong foots the goalkeeper, uh, Alexander Schwab. I think, Uh, but it's he you see him sort of point after the balls in the back of the net to his eye saying like I couldn't see it. But I also think it's just a very deceptively hit shot from Sargent because it seems like it's going to be sort of on a rope to the far corner and then it bends back towards the near post. And it's just a, a great shot. But then what he did to allow him to have that shot also made me very, very excited. Joe, how much of this goal have you seen? I've seen some of it. I know there's a really, not to steal your thunder here, but I know there's a really Mm -hmm. killer turn involved in this goal. And I'm assuming that's where you're going. And that, man, the shot was so nice. But I heard Matt Doyle talk on Extra Time a little bit earlier today. I was listening and he referred to this goal as a non-repeatable or a non-replicable goal. Something like that with the idea of being... It's a 2% probability, I believe. You can't score this goal every time, right? You're not going to score that goal every time. That's science, right? It's not going Mm -hmm. to happen. But the action that comes before the shot, that I think is repeatable. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Taylor, to talk all about that turn. Yeah. So it, it's essentially Hertha, again, desperately trying to get the ball out. Uh, it's a very poor sort of headed clearance-ish from Nicholas Stark, but he ends up putting it, uh, Nicholas Stark playing for Hertha, puts it back into the middle of the field. And now it's a 50-50 between Sargent and Matteo Ganduzzi. Uh, and Sargent... I, I love the first part of this, which is as like he and Ginduzi are both running towards this bouncing ball, Sargent gets there a little bit uh, more quickly, but rather than kind of take the ball and continue on with his momentum, he steps 
like sort of around it over the ball. And so he then has his hip between his left hip between himself and the ball or between Ganduzi and the ball. So now he's automatically sort of taken ownership of it. And it makes Ganduzi have to try to win the ball back. At that point, it's not a 50 50. It's a now I've got a, a, a defender on my back and I have a little bit of momentum here. I have a little bit of leverage. I think. You have other Hertha players collapsing, and I think there's then that diffusion of responsibility a little bit as everybody is trying to kind of, not everybody, but I think there's three different players who step to Sargent in various forms. And this is where uh, the the turn that you mentioned, Joe, comes in, because now he's stepped across, he's got the hit between uh, the between Ganduzi and the ball. I'll get that eventually one day. <laughs> and you would expect him to then, like, okay, so now he's going to go like in the opposite direction and take it uh, towards the far side of the field, and then he turns and comes back. And I think Ganduzi like double fooled at that point and that is where that space comes from because then he can take another touch keeps uh like himself between Ganduzi and the ball there we go I did it and then he's able to get that shot but it's sort of the awareness of the 50-50 then how to make sure that you cleanly control the ball instead of kind of taking it and continuing on at full speed that's going to take you right into another opponent you're still having to improvise but it feels like from the moment he's able to sort of take ownership of that ball he knows what he's doing it's very deliberate and every single decision makes more sense than the last, except for the shot, maybe, because again, 2% probability, but who cares, because it goes in. I think I really want to use double fooled as a part of my regular vernacular. I like that a lot. Um, But Mm -hmm. to zoom in on the soccer thing here, I remember watching Josh Sargent play with the with the U-20s, with the U.S. U-20s at the U-20 World Cup and and the U.S. U-17s at the U-17 World Cup years ago now. That might have been, what, 2017? Uh, maybe maybe more recently than that. It doesn't matter. The point is, I think as far back as I can remember, when I watched Josh Sargent, his best attribute has been his ability to turn on the ball, his ability to keep a defender on his back and turn and get a shot off. And we're seeing that come back for Werder Bremen a little bit, or at least we saw it this one time enough to, to lure us back yeah. in and make us hopeful again. I don't know if yeah. Werder Bremen will continue to be a high-output attacking team. Actually, let me rephrase that. I know they won't continue to be a high-output <laughs> attacking team, but it is good to be reminded that Josh Sargent can still do things with the ball and when he's in dangerous attacking positions, because I think I've kind of been forced to forget that after watching Werder Bremen just play long for 90 two minutes a game, every game. <laughs> I, I did like uh, their shape was really good in this game. They went with a, a sort of 3-5-2, but it was almost a, like, uh, when they were attacking, you had that front two, but then you had almost two number 10s behind in uh, Bittencourt and Abom. And then it was Schmidt, as I said, Selka starting. But that sort of, you have that foursome right there. You've got that square that you can find the passes. You've obviously got the triangles incorporated into that. And then you have overlapping wingers and, or wingbacks, excuse me. And I think there was a lot, there were just a, a many more options that I think we're used to seeing from Werder Bremen what we're used to seeing is like what we saw for Schalke, where it's Hoppe just trying to make something happen. He's trying to bring the ball down and, and go at somebody. In this one, we started to see quick passing exchanges, one and two touch passes that move the ball on the field. We saw some direct long balls over the top, certainly. But we also saw some players carrying it forward themselves, and that opened up space. But there was a diversity in the approach in the way they attacked that I'm not sure I've seen as much of a Werder Bremen. I'm pretty confident I have not. So you're correct. They're probably not going to keep scoring as many goals. But signs of life, signs of positivity and a wonderful goal from Josh Sargent. All happy things, Joe. I do have a solution for Werder Bremen. Taylor, if you're ready for it, I think this would solve all of their attacking problems mm-hmm. and make them a, at least a four goal a game kind of team. 
Yeah, uh, they just need to play Hertha Berlin every week. Um, you're, I think you're that's welcome. probably it. I thought it was going to be they just need to score four go- four goals every oh, game. Yeah. But yes, also Hertha Berlin, man, Ooh, boy. <laughs> that's a that's a team with a lot of money that spent a lot of money, and it does not look like it because they seemed they seemed like a team that kept having to again like think about what they were doing and the way that manifests in my mind is there's just always an unnecessary touch or the ball pops up because if you know let's say if the left center back is playing it to the left back you sort of know as the left back if I want to take it down the line I'm going to either like kind of sweep it forward with my right foot or I'm going to wait and take it with the instep of my left and I'm going to kind of go down that touch line and I think you just kept being able to see Hearts of Berlin like ah no I'm just going to take a touch okay now I'll go and just moments of indecision I don't know how quickly that team is going to figure things out they probably need to but maybe maybe Werder Bremen have and that's where I'm gonna leave it there Joe where should we go next hey folks this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early there are teams that will leave that business very late and there are teams that will operate in between but no matter what it's going to be a chaotic situation there's going to be Offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's go to Spain, Taylor, if you're along for the ride with All me. Right. I want to talk about Yunus Musa. He started and played 79 Always. minutes for Valencia in their 3-1 loss to Atletico Madrid on Sunday. Uh, not not the best result for Valencia, and so I want to zoom even further in on Musa because we don't want to talk about Valencia getting getting beaten nah, like fine. that. 
But man, my, my main takeaway from this game and from Yunus Musa and from Schalke and Matthew Hoppe against Bayern Munich, Taylor, in this one with Valencia and Atletico Madrid, Yunus Musa, an 18-year-old American, was starting against the best team in La Liga. And then we, we think back to that Bundesliga game that you, you walked us through just a minute ago yeah. with Hoppe and Schalke. That's a 19-year-old American striker starting against the best right. team in Germany. These are these are big moments. And even though Hoppy and Musa didn't, and I guess spoiler alert on Musa, those guys didn't really change the game for their teams. They didn't make incredible attacking moves or you know goal line saves to to help their team score or stop goals necessarily. But the fact that two American teenagers started against two of the best teams in Europe right now and league leaders in Spain and in Germany. That is that is a really really good sign and a really objectively cool thing. Absolutely, and like, and I think like to to emphasize what you're saying, like we want them to score goals every week. We want them to beat the league leaders or be the league leaders every single week. And obviously, that can't happen unless you're say Erling Holland, and then somehow you manage <laughs> okay. to pull it off. Uh, but what well, the reason why we started doing this show, the reason why I think we were both excited to do it, is because it allows us to see are these players developing, are they growing. Uh, like, are are they kind of getting more comfortable? And I would only say that, like, I don't think that's the case for Yunus Musa, just because, like, I, I have yet to see him be like, oh, okay, he cannot do that, and so he's got to get better at that. Like, oh, he doesn't really have that in in his bag of tricks. I hope that's a thing he can learn. I feel like he kind of keeps impressing me. I keep seeing moments from him that I'm like, okay, like, didn't know he could do that, but that's awesome. Oh, yeah, he kept doing that. That's awesome, too. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about him, we, we mention these, like, long slaloming runs he'll sometimes go on, and that's all very... Like, I don't know, it makes me very enthusiastic to see him do that against CONCACAF opposition or to see him do it again. But, Joe, I'm wondering, are you going to be talking positive or negative? Are you going to bring us back to reality with Yunus Musa or are you going to continue the hype? I'm kind of going to split the difference and, and be right in the All middle. Right. First, I want to say we almost had another one of those classic Yunus Musa runs up that right side, that highlight reel kind of stuff. I think the last two times I've talked about Yunus Musa, there were... Moments like that where he's bursting up the right wing and making defenders look silly. I know certainly it was what was one of the things I talked about last week. And we almost get one of those in this game. It's the 32nd minute and Valencia switched the ball over from their left side over to Musa, who's playing as that right sided midfielder in a 4-4-2. So they switch the ball over to him on the right side. Musa then starts to dribble forward and he tries to beat Mario Hermoso down the wing. That's Atletico Madrid's left sided center back. But Hermoso is fast and he, he doesn't end up, Musa doesn't end up being able to separate from that Atletico defender. And it ends with Musa getting dragged down. Maybe a foul, maybe not. You could go either way. But Musa doesn't quite hit the threshold to get that highlight reel run. But man, he was close and I wanted to bring that up because that has been a theme over the last couple of weeks. But Taylor, where I want to really focus on today is mm-hmm. again, not, not necessarily something that paid huge dividends for Valencia or for Yunus Musa in this game. And it's not even a specific moment. It's more of a series of specific moments. It's Yunus Musa's runs in behind. And and when I think of runs in behind, maybe just because I spend so much time looking at things through to use an expression I believe you used on yesterday's show, red, white, and blue tinted glasses. Uh, yes, that is correct. It's, it's well done from you on that one, Taylor. But because <laughs> Thanks, I think yeah. I look at soccer through those lenses sometimes, and certainly through, I look at young Americans through those lenses sometimes, when I watch Yunus Musa play, I think of him as a central midfielder who is being put out on the right wing because we know Greg Berhalter sees him as a central midfielder. That's where he played in the November window with uh, the U.S. playing Wales and Panama. Musa played as a number eight in front of Tyler Adams. And that, for me, is still his best spot. And so 
When you think about the U.S. men's national team, at least when I think about them, I think about the number nine being flexible and having the option to drop in or to push beyond the back line and break that line. And when the number nine drops in, when it's when it's Josie Altidore playing there, I'll just say this right now, that player is going to drop in. The nine, if it's Altidore, is going to come into midfield a lot. And when that happens, we saw this against Wales, you need someone to push in behind and break the back line to stretch the other team, to stretch them vertically and to make sure that there's space for the number nine and for the three midfielders or at least for the remaining midfielders to operate. And Yunus Musa in this game against Atletico Madrid showed that he is willing and capable to make those runs in behind the back line to force the Atletico Madrid defense back or to force the fill-in-the-blank CONCACAF opponent defense back and create that space in midfield. Musa made, I, I counted six of those kinds of runs, six of those direct vertical runs, either in possession or in transition in the first half for Valencia over the weekend. He had one in the eighth minute, the 16th minute, the 25th minute. I will spare you the rest. But he made those runs over and over again to stretch and push Atletico Madrid back and create space or to at least give his teammates an option in behind. And it didn't pay off for Valencia, but that skill set and that willingness reminds me of Weston McKinney. And it also, Mm. I think, fits very well into what Baralta wants his midfielders to be doing on the field. Uh. How much more Musa do you have? I don't have a lot more Musa, but we can go as long on Musa as you'd like. Well, no, it's mostly just because you have kind of teed that up perfectly. Because Take it away, uh, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about Weston McKinney as well. And a, a point you made there about the sort of you need those line-breaking runs, you need players running from deep to attack the space. James Horncastle wrote a very good piece for The Athletic, uh, how Weston McKinney has cast his spell over Andrea Pirlo and Juventus. Obviously a reference to his goal celebration. But one of the points he makes is that uh, like a deficiency in Juve's attack last season, uh, aside from just not enjoying Maurizio Sarri very much, was like uh, Ronaldo wants to uh, be on the ball. He drifts wide a little bit. That's where he can find some space to then create. Paulo Dybala, when he was like playing in, a, in an attacking position, would drop in and try to link up. But then you kind of crowd things. You've got like more numbers in the middle. You don't have as much effectiveness when you're trying to build and spread the field. Weston McKinney seems to have been a, a key part of there's space to be attacked, he's going to attack it. He's going to charge into that. And so uh, that's another area in which I have to believe Greg Berhalter is watching his performances and thinking, like, I I, I don't know how I got so lucky to have this guy, but, but he is real, real good and fits exactly what I want because we talk a lot about his late-arriving runs and how that's such an asset. It's usually with Weston McKinney, late-arriving runs and ball-winning, I think, are the two things, and that's accurate. He's won a ton. I think he's top for Juventus in aggressive actions. Uh, that was from the Horncastle piece as well. That's aggregate tackles, pressure events, and fouls recorded within two seconds of an opponent receiving the ball. Whew, that was a long one. Uh, but I think like those skill sets that were already there have once again, like we, we're starting to see him add new things and get a little bit more confident. And when he gets more confident, he's going to try this or he's going to try this pass or have this shot or this quick combination or just do something different. And Part of that is that, uh, like, charging into space either with the ball or looking for the ball over the top. And it's just, it's brought another asset to Juve, who looked very bad last week when he did not start. Here he is starting, and they looked much, much better. It's, that it just blows my mind. And it took me a minute to respond there, or I feel like I usually jump in pretty quickly. (laughs) And I was just thinking, man, I was thinking, Weston McKinney looks so good for Juve. And I, I don't, I still don't understand how that happened. I don't understand what's going on. But he really does look like one of their best players. And I, yep. man, it feels wrong to say that. It really feels wrong to say that. But from what I saw of him in this game, scoring a goal and moving around on the field so aggressively and so, so fluidly, moving from defense to attack and covering so much ground in midfield for Juventus, 
He brings so many things to that team. He brings so many different skills and so many different actions to this group of players. He's become a borderline indispensable player for Andrea Pirlo. And I never thought, I never thought I would be saying that a few months ago, a year ago or whatever, you know, however long it's been now, time is weird. Definitely not. It's it's bizarre, Taylor. It truly is. And I couldn't be happier to be saying that. Yeah, I I think there's two components to that because I agree with everything you've said. But in looking at like how that's become the case, I watched like I started watching him more off the ball and just little things he was doing. And it becomes clear to me that he is getting a lot of instruction from Andrea Pirlo in a way that he was not from Schalke. Uh, the commentator for this game was pointing out that with Schalke, he was being asked to do so many different things every single weekend that it, it felt like, I think the way he, the commentator took that was it just like he always had all these different responsibilities and he was never like able to, to focus in. And I think that makes sense. But for me, it felt more like he was always being moved around. And so he never learned how to like identify moments. And I see much more of that from him. I see him like even defensively, he'll look around. And then I'll see him back up a yard or he'll move to the left like a half a yard. And that feels like some Guardiola stuff that feels like he's being coached on where exactly he needs to be to do his defensive job. Uh, if people didn't see him or haven't been watching, it's it's like sort of a right midfielder, but really it's a right central midfielder. They go with that like Atletico Madrid, very condensed midfield of four that kind of moves from one side to the other together. But just how constantly he is checking around him to see where he needs to be. Does he need to adjust? Those little maneuvers are a thing that I think you cannot do unless you're playing the same position or roughly the same position consistently. And to your point, I did not expect that to be the case, that he would be doing that for Juve. I think that then comes down to the second point, which is willingness. And it's a thing we hear about a lot from American about American players by uh, foreign scouts is that there's there's a, a willingness to work to learn to try new things from American players, especially young American players. And I think, again, we're seeing that from Weston McKinney, that he does a lot of running. I, I was surprised by how much he was up and down and back and forth and back and forth. Not like because I don't expect that from him, but just it's not. I guess I do kind of not expect that from him. Like, he's not a player who I just think of as like, oh, we know him for his endurance. We know that he can run 10 miles more than anybody else. It just, it seemed like that was the case in this game. And that, that hunger, that energy that's on and off the field, he's samba dancing or salsa dancing with Juan Cuadrado. He's casting a spell, as I said earlier. It just seems like he's kind of figuring a lot out. And I think part of that is maybe the tutelage of Andrea Pirlo and the training sessions that they're doing. But it's also just him. I think once you start to feel it, you start to feel yourself. It's a little bit what was happening with Matthew Hoppe, I think it's definitely happening with Weston McKinney. And to add one thing to your explanation list as to why McKinney's maybe looking better than we expected him to look. List, monologue, whatever. Yeah, either yeah. way, there's a fine line in there. <laughs> I think I think maybe a big thing for me is you move from Schalke, who were a bad team when Weston McKinney left. They weren't always a bad team while he was there, but they were bad at the they were end not. of his time there. And you move from that team with their talent to Juventus and their talent. And I completely believe that if you move to a team that plays at a higher level and has just more ability on the field, you're naturally going to look better. Taylor, if I go out and yeah. play pickup with you and with Bobby and, you know, with actual capable soccer players, of which I am not really one, I'm going to look a lot better than I would look on a team with a bunch of people my you know, at my skill level, at my mental ability on the field, because you all know how to move. Bobby knows how to move. You know where to go. And I can just sort of fit in and move around in that and eventually excel and make simple decisions and make passes that I'm capable of making and, and make those simple things happen. I'll carry it one step further. If Josh Sargent moves to Manchester City tomorrow, that's not going mm-hmm. to happen. But if he did, 
Josh Sargent would look so much better in the attack. I 100% believe that. If, if Pep Guardiola said, okay, that's fine. You can start, you can start our next game or maybe, maybe another game and another game after that. You give him a small sample size. Josh Sargent would score more goals or at least get more XG and rack up chances more often. And by association, he would look better because of the players around him. I do think that's part of the situation with Weston McKenney moving from Schalke to Juventus. And I think he's elevated along with the talent around him. And he's even pushed yep. beyond where I would have expected him to elevate and the level I would expect him to reach. And that's credit to him. But I think that that principle of having better players around you makes you better also applies here. Absolutely. And then having players who will let you know if you've made a mistake, uh, which is what I assume Giorgio Chiellini is and is definitely what Bobby is when you play pick up with him. <laughs> I think that also, you know, you don't want to get yelled at by Bobby. So make that smart pass. You don't want to get Giorgio Chiellini mad. I definitely do not. So uh, make sure you do some running. And that is what we saw from Weston McKinney. We should talk about or I should talk about uh, two specific moments. Uh, the first one, it's it's just like. It, it kept getting better. It's a sequence in which Bologna, uh, Juve's opponents, are trying to build out. And uh, as I said, when he's playing that right central midfield spot, he is sort of a right midfielder, but he's tucked inside. And Bologna are able to get it uh, to their 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 left back. And Mes- Weston McKinney just, it's maybe 20 yards, but he closes it so fast. And I, I think no one was really expecting him to get there as quickly. And so it forces everybody to kind of slow down. They turn their backs and he's able to then win the ball. It's a quick little pass. He continues his run. He ends up getting on the end of a cross. Uh, I think the header goes wide, but it's just still the like closing the space, winning the ball. But as he's winning the ball, it's also like an incisive through ball, then continuing forward and not pausing to reflect on the brilliance of that moment, but instead then continuing to try to create. I just... I, I, I thought from like start to finish that sequence was just not a thing that I expected to see from him with Juve and feel like I haven't quite seen yet. And so I was already very excited, especially knowing that he was going to score. It was similar to Josh Sargent. And, and then knowing that it was going to be a like free uh, corner kick headed goal. Yeah, that's great. That's always a good goal. You want to see people score. But to then note that uh, Nicola Dominguez is, I think, trying to man Mark Weston McKinney uh, with the system that Bologna were going for. Uh, they, I think, were trying to man Mark across the border. At least they were doing the hybrid zone. Missing Alvaro Morata, who is not marked in this one. And, and I think Weston McKinney and he sort of are aware of that. Morata comes and stands next to McKinney. And then as the corner is taken, McKinney just runs around Morata a little bit. And now Dominguez, I think, is no longer aware of where McKinney is. He now suddenly is marking Morata, but then tries to get to McKinney and splits the difference and ends up marking neither. But that's why he's so wide open. It's not just it's not just poor marking. That's just blaming it on the defender. But it's the cleverness of that screening run and also sort of backing into Morata to know he's there to then sort of pull him forward to make sure that they're in line with each other for the sh- the screen to happen. It's just it's just again smart play from Weston McKinney who like the idea of him being like, hey Alvaro, come over here, do this, and then I'm going to do this. Like I would have expected that to be the other way around, I suppose. And so McKinney doing that and scoring and celebrating, and then Chiellini to bring it all home waits for Weston McKinney to do his one celebration, and then McKinney turns around and Chiellini screams in his face and hugs him. But I just like that everybody knew to let him do his celebration, and then we'll all celebrate as a team. All in all, a positive weekend for Weston McKinney and Juventus. The celebration was super fun, and the the two moments that you brought out, Taylor, I think those two moments are why Weston McKinney is going to be such a big player for the national team yeah. over the next few years. The first moment, you said, the, the main part of that that I loved and you brought out really well was how quickly he covered that ground and closed down that Bologna left-sided defender. He moved so quick and, and moved from an inside position out to the wing to cover that space, 
while Juventus were up defending in the attacking half. That's what Berhalter wants his number eights to do in that three-man midfield. He wants them to step up, be able to move wide and shift wide to trap the ball against the sideline. McKenney can do that so well, and he did that so well in that clip. And that second thing, Weston McKinney rises up in the box, and he's had that ability on set pieces dating back to his early time at Schalke. And so Berhalter likes that. Berhalter appreciates that. And having a player who can impact the game on set pieces, who can impact the game defensively and cover ground, and can do creative things with the ball like we've seen Weston McKinney do this season for Juve, all of those boxes are checked for Greg Berhalter and the men's national team with the form that McKinney is in right now for Juventus. If you were... With like a full strength team, you can have like the, the, the ideal 23 player squad. Who would you put as your captain? Cause I think I would go McKinney right now, but that might just be my love of him as opposed to my appreciation of maybe other players who are in that conversation. I think my answer is the next player I'm going to talk about. And, and McKinney is a close right. contender for me. <laughs> He's certainly in the, the short list. He's on my short list, I should say. Fine. Well, he is my he is my list. So there, in your face, Joe. Who are we going to talk about last? So our last player and my last player of today's show is Tyler Adams, who started, scored, and played 77 minutes for RB Leipzig in their 3-2 loss to Mainz on Saturday. Not a great game for RB Leipzig. I don't I don't want to get too much into that performance like I didn't want to with Valencia either. My, can I just say, I kind of forgot the opponent. And this is, I think when we were in Germany, this is an RB Leipzig team that beat Mainz like 8-0. So remembering yeah. that, I'm suddenly even more at a loss for how this happened. Yeah, and Mainz are relegation threatened right now in the Bundesliga. They're Ooh, not right. in a good spot. This is a a very unfortunate loss for Leipzig and Nagelsmann as Bayern Munich continued to to grow their lead at the top of the table. Um, and Adams was was okay in this game. He didn't do a ton yep. of great things, and I'm including the goal in that because it was a tap in. Right, the ball comes in. Uh, Marcel Sabitzer takes a shot from outside the box. The shot hits off the the top bar and Adams follows it up and finishes calmly, albeit, but it wasn't a spectacular goal in anything that Adams did remarkably well to finish. It's a good finish. It's a calm finish, but that's about as far as I'm willing to go. Adams played as that right back, right wing back hybrid, depending on the left sided defenders for RB Leipzig and Angelino and Marcel Halstenberg on that left side, depending on what they were doing and where they were positioned, Adams would move and, and adjust his positioning accordingly. So Adam's still not playing in the middle of the field, but he he did manage to impact the game. And I'll I'll just get right into my specific moment here. It's late on mm-hmm. in the game. RB RB Leipzig are losing. I almost said Salzburg there. Aronson on the brain, Taylor. But RB Lyles are just RB RB whatever. Go. That's the one. Who knows? RB are yeah. losing at this point. They're down by a goal, and it's it's late on in the second half, and they just lost possession in the attacking half. Mainz have the ball. They, they just recover the ball and move it out towards their left side, Leipzig's right side, which is exactly where Tyler Adams is back defending. I guess I should say forward defending because it is in the attacking half. And, mm-hmm. and so Mainz play the ball forward to Kevin Stoger, who is, who is there. He's at least occupying their left side at this point in the game. And, and before Stoger has even a half second to receive the ball and see what's going on, Tyler Adams is all over him. Adams comes in hard, comes in from behind, not in a in a dirty way. And you've seen this clip, Taylor, and I think you can back mm-hmm. me up on this. It's just a hard challenge. It's a strong challenge. Yeah. Adams petitions after he's whistled for a foul and for a yellow card. You know, he mouths, I, I got the ball and all of those things. But it is probably a very fair yellow card. But I love the bite from Tyler Adams. I'm not advocating yep. for a dirty player or any of those things. And Adams is not those things. It's kind of a cliche, but I'm advocating for the fact that you need bite on a team. You need that, especially when you're losing and especially, especially when you're losing to a team that you're supposed to be beating. Adams brought that bite in this moment, even 
playing out wide and, and not the role that maybe he'd want to be playing in under Julian Nagelsmann. He brought the bite. He showed in that moment that he he wanted to turn things around for Leipzig, and it mm-hmm. didn't happen. He came out a few minutes later. But I like the the tenacity and the aggressiveness from Tyler Adams in the second half. I think like it always comes down to what are you supposed to be doing? And and like so, like if I'm going to extend the bite analogy, I'll say like if you are not expecting habanero peppers to be on your pizza or your hamburger or whatever, like you're not going to be so thrilled by that. But if you know they're going to be there, like it's an intentional thing. And I think if we're talking about a team who maybe sit back and they try to absorb pressure, if it's a Mourinho team, for example, I think he definitely isn't pleased that Tyler Adams makes this challenge. Like it's because it's not a great tackle. I'm with you. It's not malicious, but it's it is sort of in viewed in another situation with another player. If it's honestly, if it's DeAndre Yedlin, I think I'm like, oh, see, that's a little bit reckless. I don't like that. But I think because it's Nagelsmann's Leipzig, we know he wants them to be aggressive. And especially when they're chasing, we know he wants them up on the opponent and causing problems. To me, that is a sort of like distillation of what he's being asked to do from his manager. And so if you're doing what, what what's requested and you're executing it decently well, obviously he's still, it's a, it's a foul, it's a yellow card. But I think that's why I don't have as much of an issue with it. Because if anything, it's sort of him ratcheting it up to 11 and trying to make something happen in a system that I think he's already pretty decent at understanding. And so to me, it's not a problem. It doesn't bum me out. It's not a like, ooh, see, in 1v1, he might get turned, and then we don't know. It's just more like, yeah, Tyler Adams has got some scrap, and don't try to turn on him. He might cause you some problems. The context of this foul and of this tackle makes it not so bad. If it is if it is DeAndre Yedlin, like you said, in you know the 12th minute of a Newcastle game, yep. then you know why are you doing that, DeAndre? What's the point? <laughs> What's yeah. happening? But in a game where RB Lott... Man, I'm doing it again. In a game where RB Salzburg, nope, that's wrong. That's still wrong, Taylor. In a game where RB are losing, and they really shouldn't be, and I watched this whole game leading up to this moment, mm-hmm. man, they needed something. They needed a spark. They needed anything to happen, and Adams is making that challenge. It's a win-win situation for him. He either wins the ball, or he tries to rally the team, and, and I guess neither one of those things happens, so maybe it's a win-win-lose situation. But I'm, I'm comfortable with him spinning that wheel and banking on at least – hitting one of the two win scenarios out of that. I should add, um, my wife was watching this game with me in the sense that she was in the room, looked up at the screen for about 10 <laughs> seconds, and that was enough. Uh, but she did note, I don't like their jerseys. I don't think they're going to win. So there you go. Leipzig wearing uh, the strange combination of colors that they sometimes wear. And it did not work out for them. So I think she knew that. Maybe that's a thing Tyler Adams can work on. Uh, maybe not so much as tackling. I don't have as much of a problem with that. But I definitely don't have a problem with talking about so many exciting Americans. Because I, I guess I just keep going back to like... To talk about this many players and know that there are players we could have talked about, though, we did leave off. We didn't mention Giorena or Christian Pulisic. Like, it's, it's not to say that, like, we intentionally did that or they had amazing weekends and we ignored them. It's just that there are so many players that we could be discussing. It, it kind of is never not exciting to me to look at the list of Americans and think, like, could be that one, could be this one. Ooh, what did this guy do? Like, it just, it feels like th- there are many options. Uh, and I, I think we all need reasons for optimism in the in the modern world. So I think that that's a reason for optimism in and of itself. I'm totally with you. I mean, two league debuts for players who have just moved over to Europe, two players playing against the top teams in their league. Yeah. There's a long list of accomplishments that, that kind of happened from Americans abroad this weekend. And I always enjoy covering it with you, Taylor, and, and learning that Margaret really is smarter than either one of us, even though we both kind of already knew that. Yeah, we did. And she is. <laughs> 
I'm, I won't speak for you. I'll say for myself. No, 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 she is. Almost absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay. uh, well, Joe Lowry, I really do appreciate you taking all the time to talk uh, about all the Americans abroad this past weekend. I know you uh, have got another show this week. You're going to be doing some listener questions with a guest. Do we want to say who that is or do you want to tease it? I think our guests would even appreciate the cloud of mystery surrounding right. him or her. So let's leave it, Taylor. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, so Joe will be back with that episode on Thursday. Uh, I am going to be talking to Jason Davis tomorrow. But until then, listeners, thank you all very much for listening. And we will talk to you all very soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.